Welcome. My name is Caleb, and you are listening to the Vitamin C Podcast. We are officially in the year 2024, which has probably made many of you say, hmm, wait a minute, hold on, I never got a top 10 movies list from Caleb at the end of 2023, and you are correct. While many people post their lists in the last week of the year, I was also going to do the same, until I came across Twitter user Joe Russo, who set out a whole new list of rules and guidelines that I had never heard of. One of these rules was that I had to have watched every single movie in 2023 in order to rank my top 10 movies of 2023. The problem with that is that there were over 18,250 movies that released in 2023, making me about 18,000 movies short of the goal I needed in order to make a top 10 list. Some other rules included movies that had to be there, ways that you had to name your list, and a number of other things. Finally, I determined that maybe this guy was not the authority on top 10 lists and that I should just put my list out there anyway. So that was what I did. So after taking one more week to rewatch a few movies and think a few more over, I decided to put out there my top 10 list of 2023 movies. But before I get into that, there are a few things that I need to address. I want to address these right away in the episode in case I forget to do so at the end. So first of all, you may notice that this episode is dropping on a different day than I usually drop my episodes on. And the reason for that is because going forward, as of right now at least, I'm just going to be releasing one episode a week. I'm going to be releasing it in the middle of the week. And there are a lot of reasons for this. I've thought it over a lot. One reason is just that I do not have time to do two episodes a week anymore. It is difficult for me to even see more than one movie a week at times or even to see one movie a week at times. So I'll just say that I have a different job that I am starting and it's going to make it a lot more difficult for me to do this podcast, but I'm trying to find any way possible to keep it going. And so the best possible way for me to do that is to limit myself to just one episode per week. Because while it may not seem like much, you may tune into an episode and say, oh, here's a 20, 30 minute episode. For every hour I record, that's maybe about 45 minutes of actual content that I'm able to use. But to edit that hour down into 45 minutes takes me about three hours. So It can be very time-consuming to not just record my episodes, but also edit my episodes and then edit videos to go out with my episodes and all that stuff. So just saying that doing two episodes a week when I'm also working a full-time job, it's not entirely worth it at this point in time for me. As much as I enjoy doing it, I just am left with almost no time and I'm rushing episodes or sending out episodes that I feel are half-assed in some way because I did them in the 11th hour and the editing is messy or just my thoughts are scattered because I tried to quickly record and then edit and then put it out there. So For that reason, I'm just going to be doing one episode a week. It'll come out in the middle of the week on a Wednesday. I feel like that's a good day to do it. This is me trying to make an effort to keep the podcast at the level of quality that I want it to be at. 
while also understanding that I just can't do what I've been doing. So yeah, going forward, it'll just be once a week, middle of the week on a Wednesday, and maybe down the road, my schedule opens up a bit more, or maybe down the road, this podcast becomes a little more profitable for me where I'm able to justify investing a little more of my spare time into this. But for now, it's just going to be one episode per week. On top of that, if you guys did not notice, my Aquaman episode actually dropped on a Friday when I was doing Monday and Thursday releases, and that was a whole mess. I got so sick last week, you guys would not believe it. So there's something going around right now. I thought it was just a stomach flu at first when I got it, but there's something going around called the norovirus. It's also called the winter vomiting disease. And I will say it lived up to its name. Apparently, it's been going around and I was in contact with a few people that had it, did not know it. And uh, yeah, I woke up. It was the night after Christmas that I woke up at 3 a.m. And I saw everything that had ever entered my gut in my lifetime for the next 12 hours. (laughs) It was so bad, man. And my throat honestly still hurts from it. My gut is still a little bit sick from it. My body has not fully recovered, to say the least. It was one of the worst things I've ever experienced. And because of that, I did not get my episode out on time for Aquaman. I had it recorded. I just needed to edit it. And unfortunately, I woke up, you know, Tuesday at 3 a.m. feeling awful. And that was the day I was supposed to edit it. And then Wednesday, I was still feeling just terrible. And I wasn't really feeling well enough to do anything until Thursday when I was supposed to have the episode ready. So I dropped it Thursday very late at night. So you probably saw it Friday morning. So apologies for that, but that is the reason why. And that's also why it's kind of beneficial now to only have one a week because I don't have to worry as much about deadlines. Because with Monday episodes especially, it was such a chore. I had to see the movies on Thursday so that I could record on Friday and then edit Saturday, Sunday, and have it ready for Monday. And if I couldn't see it Thursday night, it was nearly impossible to make the deadline. But anyway, nothing more needs to be said about that. Uh, I just wanted you guys to know that that's the plan going forward. Now, the important thing that you're all here for. Maybe some people don't even normally listen to this podcast, but I'm sure some of you are longtime listeners. So yeah, I have my top 10 movies of 2023 list. And that guy I was talking about, by the way, Joe Russo, I'm probably going to attach a few of the memes that were made about him because he was being such an ass on Twitter. Like everyone was clowning him over the way he was acting about movie lists. And The thing is, I partially thought he was trolling, but I also think that he was serious at first, and then when people were getting on him and making fun of him, he then just committed to the bit. He decided what he was doing was a bit and committed to it, but yeah, he was just making an ass of himself. It was hilarious. So keep in mind with these top 10 movies, I have gone back and forth on some And it's because some I rewatched and I liked a lot more on rewatch and some I haven't rewatched and that makes me say, oh, how good was it if I wasn't compelled to rewatch it? And so, I don't know, some of these in my top 10, especially in the 7 through 10 range, I don't know if those would be higher on rewatch or lower. I'm not really sure, but this is where I ranked them at the time. The second I watch a movie, I'll rate it and then later that night I will put it in my rankings 
And then I periodically adjust my rankings throughout the year after every new movie that I watch. And at the end of the year, I'll reshuffle it again when I'm able to rewatch a few of these. And so, yeah, I'll start with just some honorable mention movies. So these are ones that maybe would make my top 10 on rewatch, but for now, they're just outside of my top 10, but I definitely enjoyed these ones. So the first honorable mention one I will note is The Killer, starring Michael Fassbender. It's a David Fincher flick. Talked about that one pretty recently. It dropped on Netflix, so it didn't get a ton of attention. It's not David Fincher's best movie, but even David Fincher's not best movie is still like better than 90% of movies that are coming out today. And I would say that's the case for The Killer. It's like an 8 out of 10 movie for David Fincher, but hey man, it's still pretty enjoyable. It's really well shot. I loved Michael Fassbender in the role. And I just like the style and the pace of David Fincher's movies. I like the rhythm of his movies. Another honorable mention one I will note is Creed 3. So Creed 3 borderline made it into my top 10 on rewatch. And what's funny is this is one that I watched and I was a little bit let down, but I thought it was really good. There were just a few major gripes I had, maybe minor gripes that I made a big deal about. And I still have some of those gripes, but on rewatch, I didn't care as much because I already knew that I had these issues and I didn't care as much because I said, you know, the movie still really works despite these issues I have. So yeah, that was one that I watched. I thought it was very good and I just couldn't justify putting it in my top 10 because I was kind of irked that Sylvester Stallone was not in the movie, but then I rewatched it and I put it right at around number 10. And then there were just a couple things that ended up bumping it out towards the end of the year. But I still really like Creed 3. I think it's a very good movie. And then the last honorable mention one that I will make note of is Rebel Moon by Zack Snyder. So I told you guys that I love Zack Snyder. I think this movie has some flaws. I think it's obvious that it needs a director's cut to flesh all the characters out, to flesh the story out. And so yeah, I had a few nitpicks. But I still love Zack's movies, and for that reason, if Zack's got a movie, it's going to be one of my favorites of the year, even though I can't really justify putting this one in my top 10. I did still enjoy the world that Zack created a lot, and I'm just excited to see more of it. So that's my final honorable mention that I'll make note of. And now we'll get into my top 10. So at number 10 is M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin. This is one that I thought looked interesting. I thought it looked like it could be a decent time, an interesting story and all that, but I ended up really, really liking it. I don't know what it is for me, but M. Night Shyamalan has won me over late in his career because he's a guy that when I was young, I loved his movie Signs. My parents would not let me watch The Sixth Sense. I ended up watching it much, much later, and it's a good movie, and it's not too scary for kids. I don't know why my parents thought it was. And then there was his movie The Village that I remember being so disappointed because I thought it was great until the big stupid twist at the end of the movie. But now I kind of love The Village. That's one where once I know that I'm not going to like the twist, I'm able to rewatch and appreciate the movie as a whole because I say, well, I guess the twist works for what the movie is. It just makes the movie different than what I thought it would be. But I think that The Village is a very beautiful movie. And Signs also 
on rewatch is incredible. It is a fantastic movie. But as far as Shyamalan's later stuff goes, a lot of people love Split. I didn't really love Split. I thought it was pretty good, but I didn't love it. And then there was Glass, which everybody thought was terrible. And then I watched it and I was like, dude, I don't know. This is really, really good to me. And I rewatched it probably a couple of years after I first watched it. And on that watch, I thought this will probably be the time where I say, oh, okay, this is boring. This is bad, like everybody said. But no, I still walked away saying, that's a pretty good movie. I like how it's shot. I love the color schemes they use for each character. It's very much an anti-superhero movie. And that's why I love it. And I think that's why a lot of people didn't get it. And maybe some people got it and still just didn't like it. That's fine. But I think a lot of people did not get it because that was at the height of superhero movies. And me, as somebody who's burned out on those, watched a movie that was basically an anti-superhero movie, and I loved it. I thought it was great. And I still think it's a very good movie. And now you have Knock at the Cabin, which I believe is a very good movie. I think it's really well shot. Uh, I did have a friend, it's a friend who listens to this podcast, who watched it pretty much in my recommendation. Maybe he already wanted to see it, but he had texted me just saying how much he freaking hated Knock at the Cabin. And I remember him having some decent reasons where I said, oh, okay. And some of it was just like, oh, he thought it was predictable. But for me, I really didn't think it was that. And so it's like, ah, I don't know, man. It's like the movie Knives Out. When I watched that, I was like, dude, this is so predictable. How did nobody know exactly what was going to happen in this? But I know plenty of people that are like, oh, there's no way you could have guessed where that one was going. I'm like, well, really? So I don't know. That's one where it's, I don't think everybody's lying. And I don't think my friend's lying. I think he really saw everything coming. I don't think he was surprised by any of the creative risks that the story took. But for me, I was. (laughs) So... Yeah, that was a big thing for me is that the risks that this story took, the things that happened in the movie, they did surprise me and it worked for me overall. And just anytime you have an M. Night Shyamalan movie, it's going to be well shot. And unless we're talking about the happening, the acting is going to be very good as well, which the happening is kind of intentionally campy. But I was impressed with a few of the acting performances in Knock at the Cabin, and I'll just say, yeah, I had a good time with it. I think M. Night Shyamalan has kind of won me over at this point, though, so that's important to keep in mind before you go and watch it at my recommendation. At number nine, I have the movie that Joe Russo on Twitter said that everybody had to have in their top 10 or it's not a valid top 10 list, and then he didn't even have it in his top five. (laughs) but uh it's still a very good movie he was not wrong it's a great movie and that is godzilla minus one so this is one i went in with no expectations whatsoever i thought yeah that looks kind of cool and i was just expecting a movie that would be kind of cool and i walked out saying wow that was really really good like i felt the emotional stakes godzilla was terrifying in the movie And the visuals were so, so good, especially for the budget that they made that on. It's a huge budget by Japan standards, but here it's not a big budget at all that it was made on. And so, yeah, it looks incredible. I think that there are characters that you care about, that you root for. And overall, I was just surprised. I was completely shocked at how good that movie was. And so, yeah, I wish I could have seen it a second time in IMAX, but... 
Either way, it was a ton of fun in theaters, and I'm looking forward to rewatching it on home viewing in the future. At number eight, I have The Pale Blue Eye, directed by Scott Cooper, starring Christian Bale. So this was a movie that was kind of a gothic murder mystery movie. And I thought it looked really interesting from the very first trailer. It was one I was excited for. And it ended up getting kind of mid-reviews. Not bad, but also not great either. Not glowing. It was all like, yeah, the movie's okay. And that was the consensus for most people is that the movie was okay. And I'll just say that this is kind of my style of movie. I love murder mysteries, first of all. Any movie that will take itself seriously and have gruesome murders that you don't know if they're cult murders, you don't know if it's a single killer that has established a pattern with his murders, or, you know, I don't know. I like that kind of stuff a lot. And so I was really drawn in by this one. I think it's well shot as well. Scott Cooper is just a great director, man. I love his movies. Not all of them get glowing reviews, but I think they're all very well-made films. And yeah, I just found this to be a compelling story. And it was one where by the end, the mystery is solved. And I said, okay, this is like a perfectly good 7 out of 10, 7.5 out of 10 movie. Like it's a pretty good movie. But then there's one more twist to the story in the final 10 minutes, basically. And that was when the movie really hooked me. That was when it won me over. That's when it elevated itself like a whole star rating. To me, where I said, okay, this is not just a generic gothic murder mystery movie. This became something a little bit more interesting in its final moments, and I love that. So, yeah, The Pale Blue Eye, I think, if nothing else, it's a good watch. Even if you end up not loving it as much as I did, I'll just say it was entirely my style, and I love the last twist at the end of the movie. At number seven, I have John Wick Chapter 4. So John Wick Chapter 4, man, it was one I was actually kind of nervous for because I said, you know, it's going to be awesome probably, but John Wick Chapter 3 was just not super enjoyable to me. So the first John Wick I thought was amazing. The second John Wick I thought was even better. And then the third John Wick I thought was so silly. Like the action was so great. And it was fun in theaters, but then when I rewatched it at home, I said, hmm, yeah, it is just a little goofy because there are characters that are goofy and there are a few gags in the movie. It feels like they're just kind of goofy. And so it's a good action movie, but I don't really think it's on par with the first two John Wick movies. And actually on rewatch, I do think the first one is the best of those three. But yeah, I was sitting there saying, yeah, these got a little bit less serious as they went on. And something that I noted was that the first movie was directed by two guys. It was done by Chad Stelsky and David Leach. And David Leach has done some other movies that I really like. Chad Stelsky has only done the John Wick movies. So I said, okay, the first one's the best. And David Leach co-directed that with Chad Stelsky. Then the second one was just Chad Stelsky. And then the third one was just Chad Stelsky. And when I rewatched all of them, I had liked the second one a bit less than the first on rewatch. And then the third one, I liked quite a bit less than the second one. And so I thought, hmm, I don't know if this Chad Stelsky guy is actually that good of a director. 
And then I see the trailers to John Wick Chapter 4, and it looks big. It looks crazy. It looks bold. I said, yeah, I don't want to be like John Wick Chapter 3, though, where I just feel like it's too silly. Like the movie refuses to take itself too seriously. I don't want that. And instead, I go to see it, and it is one of the best movies of the year, for sure. I mean, it's one of the best action movies I've ever seen, if not the best action movie I've ever seen. But absolutely, it was a top 10 movie this year for me. And it was one where I said, oh, wow, Chad Stelsky actually is a great director. There was stuff that they did with the camera in this movie that just blew my mind. There's this top-down sequence where the camera is pretty much overhead. It's like you're looking at a 2D game board almost, like an arcade game, you know? And John Wick's going through this place and shooting everybody, and he's got this gun with explosive rounds where these people are catching fire when he shoots them. And just the visuals of the scene, the craziness of the scene, and also the fact that it's shot in a way that I had never, ever seen a movie shot, period, but especially not an action movie, it blew my mind. So that was the point in the movie where I said, okay, this is not just any movie I'm watching. So far, this has been a good John Wick movie, but that was the moment where I said, okay, it's a different beast. Like this guy is almost showing off behind the camera with what they're doing right now. And I also like that they try to bring it back to the first movie, to why John Wick fights and who John Wick really is, the man. Because these movies did get a little bit carried away at some point, and even though this movie is big and crazy, it kind of tries to bring itself back to what it was. And so I appreciated that. I thought that the emotional stuff hit for me. And the action, like I said, is probably the best I've ever seen. The cinematography is fantastic. I mean, all the John Wick movies look beautiful, and this one is no exception. It looks fantastic, and it's just a big, epic movie. So then at number six, I have a movie that is almost the complete opposite of John Wick, and that is Past Lives. So Past Lives was directed by somebody named Celine Song, and it is this romance drama. I don't even know if I want to call it a romance, but it's about these two kids that grew up together and they really liked each other, but then one moved to the United States while the other one stayed in South Korea. And years later, they reconnect on social media and they kind of rekindle what they once had, but now they're young adults. And then you're just watching them sort of drift away and then reconnect, drift away and reconnect throughout the years. And as the viewer, I'm just saying they're like, man, I hope this works out. But also this is not the type of movie where this works out because this movie feels very real. It doesn't feel like a Hollywood love story by any means. So I was prepared for the absolute worst, most heartbreaking ending ever. And I would say that the ending is still a bit subversive and that it doesn't end how I could have predicted. And it really doesn't even play out entirely how I might have predicted at the beginning of the movie but it still is a very hard-hitting movie on an emotional level. And I'll just say it feels real, it feels genuine, 
The emotion feels raw and intimate. I honestly felt so sucked into it that when the movie ended, I was just sitting there feeling almost empty. And not empty in a way where I felt nothing, but just empty as in like I was just so pulled into this movie that once the movie is over, I'm like, oh crap, well now what? I just felt like I invested my entire heart, soul, and mind in the last two hours or however long the movie is. Now what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? (laughs) So yeah, I don't know. From an emotional level, it is one of the better movies that I've ever seen, and it's for sure one that really, really got to me this year. And I'm sure on rewatch, this one might shoot up even higher on my list, but for now, I have it at number six in my top 10 favorite movies. So next up, I have at number five, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Dar Salim. So the interesting thing about The Covenant is this is one that I had a not great theater experience watching and I still walked away saying that I thought it was good. I didn't think it was great. I just thought it was good on first viewing despite having a horrible theater experience. And then months later, I bought the movie on digital and I said, yeah, I want to rewatch it because I was going to show it to a few family members. And we watched it, and by the end, I thought, oh my gosh, this is not just a good movie. This is a great movie. It is fantastic. And it shot right up into my top five movies of the year at that point. And I've since watched it one more time. So I've watched it three times in total this year, and I think I appreciated it more and more on each rewatch. I'm a guy who really loves Guy Ritchie's style. I love his movies, but he usually makes very fun and entertaining movies. And this one is not a fun movie. I think it's very entertaining, but not in the way that you might think. It's not entertaining like blockbuster entertaining, but it's entertaining to me because I was really drawn into the characters, into this beautiful story. And the fact is, it's not a true story, but it is based on true events. And it kind of highlights the mess that we got some of those people into in Afghanistan. So it's a bit of a tragic story when you see that. But I think it is important to see for that reason that, yes, we got these people into a mess and then we didn't really do our part. We didn't pay our debts to some of those people that helped us while we were there. And we ended up screwing over a lot of people, basically. So for that reason, I think it's an important movie to watch, even though it's not a true story. These are true events. And on top of that, I do think that it tells a very inspirational story. Even if the story used in the movie is fictional, I think it's just a great story nonetheless. And it's one that on rewatch, I did tear up watching it. I think the score is great. I think the story I mentioned is beautiful. I think the acting performances from Jake Gyllenhaal and Dar Salim are great, especially Dar Salim. And as far as the camera work goes, I think Guy Ritchie just really knows what he's doing behind a camera. So... Yeah, The Covenant is for sure one of my favorites of the year, and it's one that I've recommended to quite a few people. As far as war movies, I should note it is pretty violent, but nowhere near as violent as most movies. I would say it is less violent than stuff like Saving Private Ryan and Hacksaw Ridge, for example. 
and also less violent than 13 hours and probably Black Hawk Down. It's very mild violence in the film, but it is suspenseful and it is an emotionally taxing movie at times, I would say. But yeah, I love The Covenant and that is why it is number five. At number four, I have Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. So this is another one that I watched in theaters. I had a really good time with it. I rewatched it in theaters with my brothers, and I still had a good time with it. And then I watched it at home, expecting to maybe like it a bit less that time, and I still really like it. The only knock that I have on this movie at all is that I think it peaks in the second act. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just my own personal taste. I like for the movie to leave on a high note. But that being said, this movie has one of the best second acts I've seen in an action film. And it's probably one of the best acts of any Mission Impossible movie, period. There's a second act in Venice and visually it is stunning there's some great digital photography in this film, and I think there's some very well choreographed, very well designed action set pieces in this film as well. So yeah, I love the Mission Impossible movies, and this one was no exception. I had a great time with it. I enjoyed it just as much as I've enjoyed any of the last couple Chris McCory ones, which would be Rogue Nation and Fallout, and I'm really excited to see Dead Reckoning Part 2. I can't remember if that's this year or next year. I believe it's next year, unfortunately. But very excited to see that because Tom Cruise is one of my favorite actors ever. I think he's super entertaining. I love his stuff, and I really love his Mission Impossible movies. So, yeah, Dead Reckoning Part 1 is at number 4 for me. At number 3, I have Ben Affleck's movie Air. I actually saw Joe Russo had air in his top five and people were clowning Joe Russo for it. And somebody said, look, as one of air's biggest defenders on here, even I don't have it in my top 10. And I was thinking, why are you acting like it's a bad movie? Air was a great movie. And yeah, no, it truly is. Air is a fantastic movie. It has probably my favorite screenplay of the year outside of my number one, which I'll get to soon. But it has one of the best screenplays of the year for sure. If it won best screenplay or best adapted screenplay at the Academy Awards, I think it is absolutely deserving. I don't even know if it got a nomination, but it deserved one at the very least. But I think this movie is funny. I love the performances in this movie. Ben Affleck, I talked about guys that know their way around a camera. Ben Affleck knows his way around a camera. He knows how to shoot scenes. There is one scene in particular where they are going over the game plan because the whole movie air is about Nike getting Michael Jordan to sign with them. And when they are planning for the Michael Jordan visit, for him to come visit their headquarters and for them to make their pitch to him, there's a scene where they're all talking in a little huddle and the camera is on this rig that is slowly rotating around this circle of people talking. And for some, you may not notice it, but for me, I'm a sicko. And I noticed that because I had seen that rig before in another Ben Affleck movie that was directed by somebody else. It was the Snyder Cut of Justice League. They used a very similar rig setup and so they use the same one or a very similar one for air for a similar type of scene where, again, they are talking in a circle and making a plan 
And I thought, huh, that's kind of interesting. But that was one of my favorite shots in the movie. And there are plenty of good shots in the film for sure. But that was probably my favorite one. Uh, But yeah, like I said, the performances are fun. The movie is really funny. Chris Messina, Matt Damon especially are so funny. Jason Bateman is always naturally funny. Ben Affleck's funny in the movie, but in his own weird, quirky way. And on top of that, it has a really killer soundtrack to capture the time that the movie took place in. So I loved Air. I thought it was a ton of fun. I put it very high on my list at the start of the year. And sure enough, it finished very high on my list at number three. At number two, I have Across the Spider-Verse. So Across the Spider-Verse was one where when I walked out of the movie, I thought, wow, that is one of the best movies I've ever seen on the big screen. Like truly, I felt so immersed in that world. I was so wowed and just dazzled by the scenery because yes, these movies visually are just insane and I didn't get to enjoy the first one in theaters. I didn't get a chance to see it. I watched it at home and I liked it. Didn't love it. Just liked it. I thought it was a good movie. And so this is one that I was excited for, but I was expecting to like it about as much as the first. And I saw a lot of people saying, oh yeah, it's good. The first one's better. And some people saying they liked it more than the first. And so I wasn't sure where I would land on that, but I figured that I would probably walk out saying, yeah, that's a really good movie, but not my favorite. Instead, I walked out and I was like, oh my gosh, dude, that might be my favorite Spider-Man movie ever. (laughs) And uh, I stand by it. I saw it several times and I really, really love Across the Spider-Verse. I love how these movies are edited. I love how they are animated. I think the humor is so well-timed. This one gets a little more serious, but there are still moments of levity. I love the voice cast that they bring in. And you guys know I'm a diehard Spider-Man fan. He's my favorite character. But, you know, my Spider-Man has been Peter Parker. I mean, that's who I grew up on was Peter Parker. And Into the Spider-Verse introduced me to Miles Morales and made me say, oh, yeah, this guy's cool, too. But Across the Spider-Verse is really when I said, okay, this guy's actually freaking awesome. Like, I love Miles Morales' Spider-Man. And so, yeah, this movie just made me feel like a little kid in some ways, but I really, really loved it. The soundtrack, too, is so great. The score is phenomenal. There was nothing like seeing this on the big screen. I saw it in IMAX a couple times and it was just great. And I've been able to rewatch it at home a couple times and I still love it. I think it's a great movie. Can't wait for part two whenever they eventually release that one. So finally, to wrap up this list, I have my number one movie. This one I watched quite a few times. It was actually the first movie that I paid money to see in a true IMAX theater because anytime I talk about IMAX, I'm talking about digital IMAX, which means that it's the IMAX format. It's a bigger screen. It's a louder theater, all of that, but it's not the same level of quality as a true IMAX theater, which there are only like 30 of those in the entire country and only about 20 of those are for commercial use. But I happen to have one of those true ones near my house. It's just not included with my AMC A-list subscription because it's at a Harkins movie theater. But after seeing Oppenheimer in a digital IMAX, I said, you know what? I got to see it in the real thing. 
And I had no idea how much bigger the screen was at the real IMAX. And I had no idea how much crisper the picture was and how much clearer the sound was. I'm telling you, I was blown away. It was a holy experience. And I was able to see that with a couple of my good friends. And I was just wowed. I mean, it was my second viewing and I was just wowed. And I've since watched it a couple more times. But yeah, I kind of knew after watching it that it was going to be my top movie of 2023. And I didn't think there was a chance that anything could take its place. I mean, that's how good it was. It was hard for me to even enjoy other movies after seeing Oppenheimer because it was just that good. And so this is one that... It's going to get nominated for every single award in the book, and I think it deserves all of them pretty much. So this is the one where when I said that Air had my second favorite screenplay of the year, Oppenheimer has my favorite screenplay of the year. It has some of my favorite performances. It has my favorite cinematography because it's my favorite cinematographer, Hoyt Van Hoytema, who shot the movie. It's Christopher Nolan who, of course, wrote and directed it, and I love Christopher Nolan. He's really the guy that got me into movies in the capacity that I am now into movies. But yeah, I love the cast of the movie. I think that it was breathtaking to see it in theaters, but at home, I'm still able to appreciate all the little technical aspects of the movie that they just nailed. I think it's truly one of the greatest movies I've seen in my lifetime, and that's why it's my number one. If you want to hear my full thoughts on any of these movies, by the way, you are welcome to. I should have episodes on every single one of these films in my top 10. We're all going to a lot greater of detail, but truthfully, I love all of these movies in my top 10 or I loved them at the time that I saw them, and uh, some I was able to rewatch, and I maintained the opinion that I love them, and then some it was on rewatch that I discovered my love for them. But yeah, if you want to hear my first thoughts, then for sure go back to any of these. I think The Covenant has a pretty interesting episode because that was a crazy theater experience, but you should be able to find all of these episodes if you are interested in hearing more of my thoughts. But for now, that is my top 10 of 2023. And I say for now, that's it. That's my top 10 list. If I make any adjustments down the road, you're never going to hear about it. But that is my top 10 list of 2023. Are there movies I'm excited for in 2024? A handful. I really don't know how good of a year it's going to be. I think there were a lot of movies that were pushed due to the writers and actor strikes and all of that stuff. So we'll see what happens there. But I'm hoping it's a good year for movies, nonetheless. But at this point, I've been talking for long enough, so I am going to wrap this episode up. I'll just tell you that if you are not already, then please give this podcast a follow on whatever you are listening on right now. And also give me a follow on Instagram. You can find me under the username at vitamin C pod. There you can find updates both on this podcast and on movies in general. As always, I appreciate you guys for tuning in. I'm excited to talk more about movies with you in the year of 2024. And you will hear from me again next week.